Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 467. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 467 you're listening to. My guest today is VP of Client Relations and Studio Marketing for Universal Music Group. I'm talking about the legendary Paula Salvatore. Paula has worked for 33 and a third years in Capitol and UMG Studios. She's featured in Dave Grohl's documentary Sound City as the studio manager in the 80s, and she was instrumental in getting Al Schmidt a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in front of the Capitol Records building. Got to give a special shout out to our good friend Steve Genowick for helping set the interview up and looking forward to you hearing the conversation. Paula Salvatore coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's revisit saying no to work. Okay, in all transparency, I started to record this and I realized I didn't have any coffee and I thought that would be disingenuous of me. So I actually had to go back and make a cup of coffee and bring it back. So I'm back, a little jacked up, ready to go because I've had a few sips. And this is actually like my second or third cup today. But I digress. Let's get to it. I've talked about saying no to work in the past. And generally that, if I recall correctly, if I recall that rant, it was more geared towards, are you the right person for the gig? And should you refer someone else to the person, you know, looking to hire somebody? Maybe you're really good at doing R&B, but you're horrible at doing rock music and have no like point of reference. So, you, you know, maybe you shouldn't take on a rock project in that case. That was kind of the basis of that last saying no rant. In this particular case, I guess that what I'm about to say is more geared towards my pro friends uh, who've had some experience. The gist is that you spend enough time in the business, you kind of get to know yourself, you know your strengths, you know your weaknesses, you know your goals of where you want to be as an audio professional. There is going to come a time when projects are going to come your way that you're kind of done with, you're kind of tired of, you're kind of like, no, that's not going to further my career, that's not going to advance anything that I want to do, and it's not in line with where I'm at. That's what I'm saying. It may be time to say no in those situations. I know that as many freelancers out there, you know, it's feast or famine. And if you're not diversifying with different things in your life to bring in different income, uh, have different income streams, that is, the idea of saying no is kind of a scary thought. It's like, well, why would I say no? You know, that's some money. My argument against that is, be careful what you commit yourself to, because if you commit yourself to a project that you're not even in alignment with in your own head, for whatever reason, for goals, for maybe it's too amateur for you, maybe it's it's not the right uh, genre for you. If you commit to that, and then another project comes around where you really want to get involved and you've been invited to participate, there could be a time conflict and you're going to be so mad at yourself that you committed to the thing that you knew you weren't right for in the first place or that you were that you wanted to turn down as a gut reaction when they asked you. 
So choose carefully, friends. Don't just commit to everything. Think it through. Now, at the end of the day, we got to pay the bills. I get that. But you don't want to look like an asshole by saying, hey, um, I'm going to have to bail on this project when they're looking forward to having you, right? So if you if you bail on a project, yeah, you could get another engineer in there, but you know, it's just, it's going to leave a bad taste in their mouth about you. And I know tough love and all that business, but really you want to be sincere and, and transparent as you can up front and just say, look, I'm not the right person. And maybe you tell them up front. Maybe you say, hey, I might bail on this project if uh, something else comes in my path here. And that'll send them either one direction or the other. They'll say, well, screw that. We'll find somebody else. Or that's okay. We're willing to, to wait to see if that happens because we really want you. And that's a tough position to be in. Yeah, I get it. But the point is, is be careful what you're committing yourself to because if you know yourself well enough, you know your strengths and weaknesses and all that business that I just talked about, there's no need to jump into projects that you don't think are right. You know, it's okay to say no. Uh, the phone will ring again. And you know what? If it doesn't, then go back to, to the first step, which I always talk about, diversify. Make sure you've got other income. Make sure you have savings. Make sure you have something to back you up in case it's a dry month or a dry couple months, depending on who you are, where you're at, right? So that's pretty much it. Just be conscious of it, be aware of it. I know that there's some gigs that are gonna come your way that you're really not enthused about because you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm tired of recording and I only mix, or I'm tired of working with those kind of bands and I would like to move on. Whatever it is, it's that's unique to you and that's your business. And there's no judgment here, obviously. So do what's best for you, right? And don't overcommit to stuff you don't even want to do. If you have any thoughts on the matter, love to hear from you. Matt at workingclassaudio.com. Send me an email. If you just want to get something out of your system, send me a message and let me know. Other than that, I'm going to drink this coffee. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. 
And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Paula Salvatore here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Paula, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Matt. It's an honor. Oh, honor is mine. Oh. So I had Candace Stewart on from East West, who you know mm-hmm. very well. And uh, right. I was so excited that you agreed to do this because, and there's also Rose, of course. Yeah. But you two in particular are two names that just continually come up and I don't live in LA. I live up in the Bay area. So even up here, your names resonate. So let's just get into it. I want to know, first off, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Rhode Island, Providence, then Johnston, very small place, Johnston, Rhode Island. And in your upbringing, did music play a part? Did, Did you play an instrument or was it just something that you listened to? I had a real passion for music and, of course, you know, being a little kid hearing the Beatles, but I just always loved music from hearing Burt Bacharach with my my parents to just hearing singer-songwriters. And when I was nine, I was really, I heard someone playing piano and I really wanted a piano, but being one of five kids, it wasn't like the easiest thing to get with your dad. And I was the second kid. So he's like, "We we got a sewing machine. And I'm like... Okay, well, I like clothes too, but I'd rather have a piano. So I started sewing a lot and listening always to music. So I had dreams of being a piano player, singer, and making my own clothes. Okay, it's a big time of sheer, making all these great outfits and stuff. So when I was visiting Boston with my brother, right before I graduated high school, I was on Mass Ave and I was looking over at this building across the street. And it seemed like there was a musician in every room. I'm like, what the heck is that? And she's like, oh, it's Berklee College of Music. And I'm like, wow. For the moving pages of a 17 magazine, I saw a college of fashion designing. And I'm like, where's this? And she says, oh, it's on Com Ave, two blocks over. I'm like, okay, that's what I'll do. I'll make clothes for musicians and then I'll eventually work my way in the band. So my father was kind of happy. It's like, oh, she's doing, she's following her you know, what she did and stuff. But instead, I learned how to really create men's clothing. And and then after being able to see the stones about four times that summer, I decided California's, I got to go. So I, in the middle of summer, made a trip with my friend to California. And that was it. 
And I said, I'm going to find guys that play music and make their clothes because they're not going to take time to sew. So there's no competition there. So that's how I worked my way up into it. Did you have a sincere <laughs> desire to actually make clothes or was that a ruse to get to different things in your life? Well, also being one of five kids, I needed my prom gowns. I needed my Easter outfits. So I was a sewing maniac. I probably would have been a really good piano player now that I think of it. But <laughs> but I did love fashion too. I liked, I love fabrics and stuff. But my really passion was growing up around like with Joni Mitchell and Bonnie Rayet and Hart. And I wanted to be one of those. Carol King, of course. Mm-hmm. But by the time I get to California, I figured I'm going to just go to Valley College and take a guitar class and take reading and writing music. But the trouble was, I was already kind of immersed in the scene. So I was working in a Music Plus in Studio City. And so I was meeting all these musicians that I was kind of watching. I'm like, I have no time to learn. I got to hang. I got to hang with everybody, you know? And it's like, and I tried to keep sewing for a while. I made clothes with these other couple girls for this group Angel and made some clothes with Joe Walsh. But when I started at Kendon Studios... It's too much to work in a recording studio and do a wardrobe for a band. So I had to kind of make a choice there. I have to ask, coming from the East Coast and coming to California, was that a culture shock for you? No, because I kind of daydreamed about it. And living in Boston for two years, I never went home between my first and second year. I just stayed in Boston. I was around BCN radio. I was around, even if I was in a working in an Indian import clothing company, studying fashion design. I was always around music. So it just seemed like a continuation. And like I said, the first band I ever really met and got to hang out with by just a fluke was the Rolling Stones that summer. It's just I got to meet people that were involved with them and they kept inviting me and my friend Lucy to the concerts. So we went twice in Boston, twice in New York, and then we just planned a trip to LA. Let's just go. And we went to LA and I looked at one of the newspapers. I'm like, oh no oh no, the Stones are here. So we called our friends that we met and we, we went to two shows in LA. <laughs> and <laughs> I got a chance to check out a lot of superstar clothing. And I'm like, oh, I can make that. I can do that. You know, it just seemed like I was destined. So it, that's why the only culture shock was not being able to get around without a car. Like Boston, you can walk or you, no one walks in LA as they started to tell me. As I was walking down Sunset with my fashion portfolio, like, Hey, hon, what are you doing walking the streets? I saw you the other day and I said, I'm looking for a job. He's like, well. <laughs> so that, that was the only culture shock was, was coming to Hollywood like that. What was your first job when you got there? I started working in a, a clothing store on, <laughs> this is so funny, Sunset Strip. It was right next to the Roxy because that's where I figured where the music was, right? So I kept walking up and down and I walked into this store called Granny's which was an offshoot of a London store called Granny Takes a Trip, very hip clothing store. And there was two Englishmen in there and they had all men's clothes. And I said, well, I could do both men and women's, but I don't have a sewing machine, so I'd have to use yours if you have one. But then I could help sell clothes too. So they said, yeah, you can have the sewing machine and just make some women's clothes. And so I was like trying to sew all by myself a line, you know, and I, I think I made a couple things and, but, I got to meet a lot of people there because it was a cool men's clothing store. So like this guy came in, he had an accent, Southern, and I'm like, oh, is this your first time in LA? Because it was mine, but he's like, no, I've been here before. And I'm like, oh, I said, so where are you from? He said, I'm from uh, Georgia. And I'm like, oh, 
So I was treating him like he was a new kid in town. And then he bought something from me and he gives me his credit card. It says Richard Betts. I'm like, oh my God, Dickie Betts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but from there, I met this guy, Gavin Christopher, that wrote for Shaka Khan. And he said, you know, my, my uncle's a fashion designer. You should work with him. And he made the clothes for Graham Central and those guys in San Francisco with the big patches. So he was doing design clothes. So he was starting to do a line. So I got working with them. So everything had a little music connection, music and fashion. Music and fashion. And in your mind, your mindset at the time, were you thinking, okay, this is it. I'm going to stay involved, meet people in music, but I'm going to continue down this fashion path? To an extent after, you know, I went to work at a clothing store Grape Nuts on La Cienica and I met Grace Slick. So I was like, I got to figure this out. So I started working for this girl and she designed the clothes for Angel, which was on Casablanca. And they were all white outfits. It was like the white answer to Kiss. They also, Casablanca signed Kiss too. And years later, I found out Eddie Kramer did the record, which is crazy, you know, who I didn't know at the time. But back then, so I was sewing with this girl and they had, she was friends with Brie Howard and Fanny and all the studios seemed to have a baseball league. So I started just going to the baseball games and I met this great producer and songwriter and everything, Vinnie Poncia. And he was working with Ringo Starr. He wrote, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. And he he was producing Melissa Manchester. But when I met him at the softball game, he was like, you have an accent like I know. And <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm from Rhode Island. And he says, what? Me too. And he was from Rhode Island. He'd been out here a long time. I mean, he played guitar on Ringo's photograph album. He produced them later. So anyway, he was a friend. And then another friend from that whole scene invited me to a studio. It was Sound Labs on Yucca. And I went there and I saw him singing with Melissa Manchester and I went outside to use the ladies' room and I saw these people in an office. And I'm like, are you an office for the studio? They said, yeah. And I'm like, studios have offices? Wow. <laughs> so I put that in my head and then I got tired of sewing, really physically worn out of sewing. So I went walking over to Music Plus Record Store and I got a job at the record store. So I figured, okay, this is one step closer. This is the end of recording. But I wasn't thinking recording. All I was thinking of... How do I get around music so I could either learn or try to sing or all three? So I got a job at Music Plus and I met so many musicians. In fact, Toto, all the guys lived in Studio City and they're always coming in. And they said, we, we put a band together. And I'm like, oh, how nice. Because I was just a girl from Rhode Island with a big accent and they were all, they were all young guys. So it was kind of fun. It was like, and I was right across from where... CBS television studios, where that was. So a lot of TV show. Everybody would come over and buy records. It was the years with Asia and Star Wars. And it was just fun. So I met a lot of people. I met musicians, started dating musicians. And I'm like, okay, now I got to either try to make the clothes or try to play piano. <laughs> yeah. I should have like studied more, but I got really tossed into the social world. And so I worked at Ms. Plus till I got involved in this relationship. And then I was going to go off with him and help him do his work so I could go on the road. And and then uh, that kind of fell apart. So I, I went back to Music Plus and said, well, I got to find a job. And he said, someone just quit Kendon. I go, what, what's Kendon? He said, it's in Burbank. So he said, you should try them. So I picked up the phone and called them. But first, I picked up the phone and called Vinnie Poncia. And I said, what do I got to know to work at a recording studio? <laughs> Guess what he said? 
He said, 24 track Dolby. Oh. Bah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm like, okay, I could stretch that out. <laughs> so I did. I called them up. I said, I, I work for this guy and this guy. I work for Music Plus. I've been a production coordinator and I know 24 track Dolby. And they're like, okay, come on over. I mean, it was all in an hour, you know, and I went over and I talked my way in. I'm like, I'm not leaving till I get a job. <laughs> so inside information and guts. Absolutely. A little spin maybe as well. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. I mean, I think it comes with kind of a desperation. It's like, I'm not ready to go back to Rhode Island and, and give up. And this was a wonderful place and it was growing so well. And the woman said she'll take a chance on me. And within an hour and a half of heartbreak, I got a job at a recording studio. I was like, wow, thank you, God. And let Vinny know. And, and from there, it was wonderful. I mean, Quincy Jones did give me the night there with Bruce Swedeen oh, for George Benson. Wow. Wow. I, <laughs> we had the first SSL. It was like, they had a few studios. They cut lacquer. And within a year, the woman that hired me, Althea Mathis, had left. They brought Rose Mann in, who wasn't Rose Mann Right, right. So they brought Rose in, and I was like, whoa, look at her. And I just used to watch her. We had a round table, and I used to watch her and go, oh, she's got the gift gift of gab, the gift of relationship. She's so funny. And she used to say, do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) (laughs) So we just bonded and that's where the growth started. Then I watched Rose as she went back to Record Plant and made it what it is and started the whole concierge attitude. And and from Kendon, I went, I actually burnt out of the music business for a minute with the relationships and all that and all the Grammys and all the hoopla. So I actually went back downtown to the clothing mart to try to get back into fashion. And I realized that those people are crazy too. So I'd rather be around a bunch of crazy musicians. You know, pick your crazy. Right, right. <laughs> I went to an AES show downtown and I saw an engineer, I knew Gary Lubo, who did Ario Speedwagon at Kendon when I was there. And he said, oh, Sound City, they're looking for somebody. So I was like, oh, yeah, Keith Olsen brought me over there years ago when he was working at uh, Kendon doing this group Airborne. And he said, this is how a studio's got to sound. And I said, but they didn't offer me a job then, so I'll go back again. And then they offered me a job this time. In 81, they hired me to work. It was a 4 to 12 desk, which very troubling in rock and roll. It's like I'd worked 4 to 12 that I'd go hang out with Dio or REO or Tom Petty was in there. And I'm like, well, this is, I got to get home, you know, eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Watching records being made is addicting. Yeah, We all know this, that are in this business, right? Right. I love that you realize that the clothing people are just as crazy as the music people. And when you say that, were were you seeking something other than crazy? Were you just like looking for a little more stability? I was looking to one of these days write a song or be part of that, be part of that whole machine, write a song. Or I knew I wasn't going to be a great piano player because I was too far behind. That's how I figured it. Yeah. But I could sing a little bit. So I wanted to be part of that all. But then when you're in the recording and you're in a service business, it's the artist comes first. So I just figured I'd just sponge in all that creative stuff. And some tape, maybe someday it'll sponge out. <laughs> so walk me through your different stages of different studios. And currently, as, as we're, we're in the story, 
you're at, did you just say Sound City? Yes. Currently in store, I'm at Sound City, 81. Driving over there for my interview, I heard a song, Jesse's Girl. I'm like, wow, this is a fun song. And then I go meet the owner, Joe Gottfried and Tom Skeeter. And he goes, we have Rick Springfield, so we're doing good. We can put some money in the studio. And I'm like, oh, I just heard that song. So that was the whole send-off of Rick Springfield. So it was fun. Sound City was like a healing tool for me. It really healed me. The camaraderie, having Keith Olsen next door, Good Day to LA, having rehearsal halls. I mean, it was crazy. And I had fun managing it. Tom and Joe were excellent owners. And I tell them what I thought we should do. And they're like, okay. I'm like, oh my God, I'm making this up as I go. So luckily from my experience at Kenton, I had some bookkeeping skills for studios that the woman there taught me. So I was able to keep it really organized. Obviously, there's a lot of studios historically that people talk about for various reasons. But Sound City, when you hear people talk about it, they have this love in their voice for it. They just, there's something that, is a little bit different. I'm wondering if if you felt that as well. Well, it was like a little shaggy dog, you know? It was like, <laughs> when I was there, it was, it was tough, you know? It was very hand-to-mouth. It was, Joe, we need to get this. We need to get that. Well, he goes, well, what do you have coming in? So I was like, well, I mean, when people like Don Smith used to come in with Stevie Nicks or Tom Petty, he's like, I want 20 rolls with the same batch of two-inch tape. I said, I can buy five. Uh, so yeah. are you better tell a record company because we just don't have the money. They weren't putting it out and there was the upkeep. And so I was always like, oh, it was tough. I'm frugal anyway. And it, that helped me a lot. And I watched a lot and I learned from a great accountant there. But it was very popular. It was it was like your home garage studio that everybody in the, in the neighborhood wanted to come. Mm-hmm. So We had to capitalize on that. It's like a big room. It sounded great. Your drums are kicking. And when I was there, it was when drum machines were coming out. So everybody was like, drum machines are taking over. And I said, not when they hear here in Sound City room. And they already did from Keith Olsen. Forget it. Pat Benatar and all. Yeah. But I said, they'll get tired of that sound. So that's why I never get worried when people go this or that, because it always keeps going. It's cyclical and it always keeps going, you know, and that's what happened was that people like the big drum sound, the big bass sound and Sound City had that. And we had a great staff, put a lot of energy into it and it was a home away from home. And But I was always hesitant to go visit the fancy studios because I didn't want to get jealous. I mean, we mm-hmm. had rent, rental furniture for about eight years. It was like, can we buy some furniture? No. <laughs> we like the plaid coach with the wood armrest. <laughs> Renting furniture. Okay. Coit. Coit furniture rental. So anyway, it was really cool. And I'm so glad Joe never got rid of that Neve 8028, I think 26 input console, because I kept saying, we need a new console. We need a bigger console. 26 inputs, not going to do it and all this stuff. And I'm glad he never did because who knew 25 years later, Dave Grohl would want to do a documentary about that console. Yeah. Just think. So sometimes you can't always say, oh, we should have did that because you never know what's going to come out. And I had just left in 1990 and then 91 Nirvana moved in. So I missed them. I had got a call, Rick Plushner from Neve. In fact, I said, Joe wants me to take you out. We're not buying a console but I'll take you to lunch. And he's like, I understand, Paul. It's okay. Then he calls me back. He goes, can I bring a couple of people from Capitol? I'm like, Capitol Studios? I, I've never been there. He's like, 
yeah, do you mind? And I said, I can't pay for them. (laughs) We don't, sorry, this is you and me. And he goes, no, he goes, no, no. So he took them. I didn't know they were scouting me. You know, I had no idea. I was just being blah, 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 blah. So no one told me. I just was like cracking jokes and everything, which is probably the better thing to do because they were looking for, I think, someone funny. And then Ellis Salkin, who runs Studio Furl, he goes, oh, I heard Capital Studios is, had renovated their Studio A and they're looking for like a manager. I said, oh, I went to lunch with them and they never mentioned. I'm so, I'm so, wow. <laughs> I, I, I can't believe it. Then Jeff Minnick, the chief tech over there calls and he goes, hi. He goes, would you come to meet us again at Hamburg Hamlet? And I'm like, okay, all right, now I'll come. So, and then when I was there at that meeting, they offered me the job and I said, I'm going to Europe for the first time. This was like August 31st, September 1st. I said, I'm finally going to Europe and I'm taking like three weeks off. And and they said, oh, because we just opened this room. And I said, well, I can't start till October 15th. And they said, okay, we'll come over and look at it. And I saw Studio A and it kind of overwhelmed me. Studio B had the Neve 8068, which made me feel at home because we had one at Sound City. But when I looked at A and how it was so clean and new, Mm. I almost got sick to my stomach. And then they brought me to the E floor and they said, so what do you think? And I said, ah, it's nice. It's big. It's good. Uh, Can I go home now? (laughs) (laughs) And... I mean, I really, it was like, you know, the first time you spend the night away from your parents' house. So they said, well, offer you the job. And I said, oh, I got to think about it. You know, and I went and Jeff called me lady goes, what do you got to think about? I said, ah, I don't know. I said, I feel like Gidget goes to Hollywood. I just don't know if I'm like the right person for that. It's it's a corporate. It's, and he said, that's what we want. We want a spirit. And I said, all right, as long as you take me for what I am, you know. And uh, I went to Europe and came back and I called Joe from my parents' house in Rhode Island. And I said, I got to move on. The main thing was there was no insurance at Sound City. There was really not not too much. Yeah. yeah. And they were really generous at Capital. So I started in October of 1990. Were you hesitant out of a sense of loyalty as well? Oh, yeah. 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 I didn't want to like, Capital just seemed so big. It was attached to a label. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least at Sound City, I was a queen of a, even if it was a rundown castle, still, I was, I knew it. Oh, and then I've got to say this really funny as a side joke is that they said my hours had to be nine. And I went from working 4 p.m. to midnight. And then when I was made manager at Sound City, they had to move me up. But I still, I said to Joe, you don't have medical insurance. So if I stay at the studio too late, I'm going to come in late. So I was coming in at like 12, 1230. And I got used to that. Because oh. rock and roll doesn't come awake till one or two anyway. I mean, there were no orchestra sessions. I would be in the hours that the people were around. And actually, the VP of Capitol Records who interviewed me with Jeff, he said, are you going to have trouble getting here at nine? <laughs> and I said, I mean, can you imagine? And I said, well, I'm going to um, Europe for two weeks and they're eight hours ahead. So I'll stop backwards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'll come in running. <laughs> So I did, I actually got sick by Wednesday. I got nauseous for my body clock was all off, but I made it through and then I pushed my hours to 10 and, you know. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link 
get your 30% off and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. You kind of hinted at it, but it sounds like you were concerned a bit about like, I mean, Sound City, Capital, very different ecosystems, different culture. Yeah. A lot more people. I know I'd be interacting with a whole label rather than being in a big garage studio with a bunch of guys, you know, it's like, oh, I, and I was worried that everybody was too, what could I say, like... Buttoned up? Yeah, thank you. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to button up too. And, but they really gave me that leniency of being creative and being fun and, and just adding that, making people feel welcome. You know, I had parents like that. They were very welcoming and stuff like that. And I just loved the musician. I just loved that they were doing something I wish I was doing. So it wasn't out of envious stuff. It was just lack of, go do it. You're so lucky. And I think that's what I was able to impart to them and my staff. We're very fortunate to be doing this. And then, of course, one of the first projects that I worked at Capital was for the boys with Dave Grusin and Don Murray. And we opened the walls up the first time and we did what Bette Midler and it was just amazing. And I'm like, who are all these musicians, string players and stuff? We never saw them at Sound City. And then from there in February, Al Al Schmidt, David Foster and Tommy LaPuma brought in Natalie Cole to do Unforgettable. I remember Dave Foster called me up. He goes, can you find the three track masters of When I Fall in Love and Unforgettable? Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I I called the library. I found it and I had the three track master. He goes, okay, well, if you could transfer it to 48 digital because we have to fly in Nat's vocals. And I remember having my hands on that tape going, how did I get here? Like, why am I holding this history? I mean, who gave me the authority? (laughs) Right. Is it a little weird when you're in that situation like you you reflect back on like where you came from in Rhode Island and you're like oh my gosh what is going on that's what I said yeah oh and I forgot to even tell you was one of my favorites of all time since I was little in love with him Paul McCartney my first few days at Capitol sitting there and it was like boring it was a mix they were no rock and roll I was like oh my god I'm gonna go crazy so I look further ahead and I see a cross written in the pencil Paul McCartney interviews and so I went what? And I went back to the uh, shop and I said to Jeff, who's very calm and everything, I said, I saw Paul McCartney in the book. Is that mean he's going to come in? He goes, I believe so. And I'm like, thank you. 
went back to my office, screamed, and uh, and then <laughs> then he comes in. The head of security for Cabot comes. He goes, "This is Paul's itinerary for the day." And I was, I'm like, "Oh my god, they're gonna catch me!" I felt like I snuck in because I did sneak in a lot of concerts in Rhode Island. I just had a knack. I had a boyfriend that showed me all the kicks to sneaking in concerts. It was fun, and I'm like, "Oh my god, I really snuck in this time." They're gonna. <laughs> and then you know, I got to meet Paul McCartney within like the first month of being there. So I was like, "This is gonna be okay." <laughs> You know, on the engineer side, I know a lot of people have imposter syndrome. Did you ever feel a sense of imposter syndrome there? Like, I'm just a girl from Rhode Island and here I am. Yeah, but I felt like I imagined this. I had a lot of imagination and I still have to think of that now. I'm like, keep imagining because those are where the dreams come from. So I always imagined and I felt like in those years, and I always tell like college people too, I go, this is as brave as you're going to be. You have so much going for you. Don't get cocky about it, but just know that this is when you have the guts to do stuff and take chances and, you know, and always keep your manners and stuff like that or whatever, your fan base, like craziness, keep that in line. And my mother said to me, one time I called her, I said, I can't find any girlfriends. People are weird here and I don't have enough money. And and she said, well, if you did come back to Rhode Island, you'll never know. You'll never know if your dreams made sense. You always loved music. I'm like, okay. Can daddy send me any money? Like, no. <laughs> no, you got to figure it out. <laughs> he did. My father said, you know, Paula, it was your decision to go. If you need a plane ticket back, I'll pay for that. And I said, okay, I understand. Because I knew, I thought it was a long shot asking him anyway. Because all these other girls were talking about, my daddy sent me this money. I'm like, well, I gotta ask my daddy. But it's a tough town and he's five kids and there were three other behind me. So it's like my decision. And it made me stronger. And I said, okay, someday I'll have to show him that I was right. And I did. It wasn't even like, I'll show him. It was like, I can't wait to show him someday. It really builds resiliency in a person, doesn't it? It totally does. Sometimes you feel bad for these really rich kids. They're never going to learn that. Right. So they'll never have that fire to really do it because they can go, well, you know what? Someone shut me down. I'm done. But when people shut me down, I'm not done. Yeah. It's a resilient pill. <laughs> what year was that that you started at Capital? 1990. Yeah, 1990. Sorry. These decades get a oh, little yeah, yeah. crazy. <laughs> right. Because you, you missed Nirvana at Sound City. Yeah. But then you got recruited and you went to Capital. And you've been there ever since? Mm-hmm. 33 years. Wow. Uh, yeah. I got a little email saying congratulations on 33 years. Every round year they give you something. But yeah, 33 years. 33 and a third I'm going for. <laughs> yeah, 33 and a third. In the early years, did you ever call Rose and ask her, like, I need help? I need advice? Oh, my God. Every day. Every day. I still call her and bug her. I called her today. She goes, I'm getting a facial. I'll call you later. <laughs> yeah, I always bounce things off Rose. And she'd call me and we'd commiserate if we were a little slow. And then we'd talk to Candace. It's great to have this woman community. Now there's so many more women grown into it. But it was such a, like, I'm in a women's group at Universal, Universal Women's Network. And the camaraderie of the women around is so wonderful. They're always here. They're backing you up, which was different from my day growing up. It was always, oh, stay away from my job. Okay. Yeah. But with Rose and Candace, we'd all, like I say, Candace is my best buddy and fierce competitor. But I always figured if we're busy, then I'm busy. I'm getting your overflow. You're getting my overflow. Let's all help each other. And we always did. And 
we felt like we had a little, not like a mafia, but we had the business. We knew the people. And it was just wonderful. It just kind of happened. It's, you know, If I remember correctly, I think she said the same thing about you. Best, best, best buddy, but fiercest competitor. Totally. Yeah. We, we made that up together when we were like going to talk to colleges. We talked to a few colleges like Crass and Blackbird. And so we always have to make it. This is what we do. We're in the same business. And it's nice. You know, it's nice to have someone that understands you that well. If we look at it by decade, just temporarily, just kind of segmented off in three different decades, what are the things that have really changed, not necessarily for capital in particular, but in the recording world, have you seen anything that you would point to and say, oh, that wasn't like that 20 years ago or 30 years ago? Yeah, doing things on your laptop or your phone. Oh, no way. Yeah. I mean, like I say, I was, we were around before computers in the office. And, oh, that's right. You know, everything being remote and doing it like that. Like they always said, she's never going to go on the digital calendar. And I'm like, when it knows to do this, I will go on it. But until that point, I'm still going to use my book and use my pencil. And someday I'll look at all this pencil stuff and go, what were they thinking? I mean, my <laughs> my little booking books with little squares and just like that. It's like hieroglyphics and Rose was the same with her writing. And I thought it was kind of fun. Everybody would come in and look at the book. Everybody come in and look at the board. So yeah, you always had interaction. Now it's like I'm looked at my phone. I saw a session, but it was nice to have people hanging in the office. Like Al used to come in the office and before I know it, there were like five different people. I just kept working. Like one time, Jeff Emmerich used to always come visit Capitol. He used to call and goes, can I come over? And I'm like, yeah, come over. he just sit there, sit in my office on the couch. And then I remember seeing Steve Jordan down the hallway. He was working with John May. And I said, hey, do you want to meet Jeff Emmerich? He goes, yeah. And I go, yeah, come on up. So they can talk and I can work because I didn't want to be making phone calls while Jeff was sitting there. So they go in and with my... Third year, I just listened to the conversations. It was just, what a wonderful blessing to have people intermingle. And I think like front offices were the best. That's how Kendon was. Kendon had a front office with a round table. Sound City had a front office. It's just like front offices are the hang place. Everybody meets up and then they have to go to work. It's like a recess. It's like the kitchen in a home. Everybody seems to gather in the kitchen, but in studios, it's the front office. Yeah, yeah. They definitely have to be those hang places for people because people loosen up like that. It must have been quite a change to go from, hey, we need this many reels, we can only afford five, to having a budget, having health insurance, having a steady salary. Like a lot of stability came into your life, I'm sure, but it also came into the studio world for you to be able to do your job and support your clients. Definitely, yeah. The technology, you know, the technical team at Capital was tops. We had enough maintenance men taking care of things, all the stuff we did for uploading and saving files and dealing with all the companies that wanted protection. And just Jeff Minnick was great. Arthur Kelm was great. They always said, don't say no to anything. I said, okay, if we could figure it out. And that's when Phil and Rome brought in ISDN to do that kind of stuff with the Frank Sinatra record. We were the first studio besides Crescent Moon and Hit Factory to do that. And I think Starstruck down in Nashville. But it's nice to be on the cutting edge and just watch it all happen and, and know that I could say, yeah, we could figure that out for you. And then just go to the shop and say, how do we figure it out? And they would. So, I mean, I love the social thing, but I love listening to the technology, even though I 
not touching anything, you know, I'm just going right. to stand back. But I love being able to know enough just to be dangerous, I would say. Yeah, but I mean, as the ship's captain, really, I mean, you, you're you moving people around and getting things to happen. How do you think you have grown in the last 30 years as the captain? Wow. Well, right now I'm just the uh, ambassador. There are a lot of captains on the ship. Yeah. <laughs> but you learn to roll with it in the studio business. You have to put all your energy into it. Like now, everybody's talking about prioritizing your life and all that stuff, especially being with UMG and being on this side of the of the fence. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of UMG people. They They worry about their people. They worry about how you're structuring things in your life. So it's it's really good, really supportive. But they started talking about perfection, not having to be 100%. And I said, in the studio business, you have to be 150% because if you make a mistake, everything falls on around you. So there's really not too much leeway to say, I'll put that off till tomorrow. So I would give it my all and stuff like that. So I, I said, I'm guilty that I didn't really prioritize. And I think... That's what Rose did. That's what Candace did. It becomes immersed in your life. Mm-hmm. You're always on the phone. You're always checking on things. It's like being a concierge at a hotel that has technology. And you got to be there for your people, for the people. So yeah. it's a living thing. When you have that stability, though, and that support system underneath you, what are the real challenges that crop up or have cropped up over the years? A lot of it's during changes in upper management, like capital was run. When I started, Joe Smith was in charge. He was amazing. But a lot of it's when different domains come in or different groups of people come in and what they want to do and not understanding the studio business. Because at capital was unique a lot because we dealt with the label, but most of the business that I had in there was outside. It's like, no, we're booked. Like we have scoring, we have orchestras. So That was unique. And a lot of studios nowadays are very catered to their own labels Mm -hmm. and artists because there's such a giant array of artists, which is good. But it was kind of neat to deal like we did the Academy Award preview course, dealing with so much outside business, which is how I built up so many relationships with people and know so a wide array of people. So that was always a challenge because one day we'd be part of Capital Records, the next day we'd be part of the corporate. And so it goes back and forth like that. So just learning to roll with it and keep the train going. Don't get into all, I try not to get into all the politics. Yeah. And I'm sure on that level at a facility like that with, you know, such a beast of an organization, I'm sure that there is a lot of politics to dodge. Yeah. A lot lot of people to keep happy. There's a great team over here, by the way, at 2115. Great team of engineers and people in charge. It's nice. One of the people that played a significant role there for a long time, Al Schmidt, of course. What did you learn from Al on a personal level? Just the professionality of Al Schmidt and also the friendliness. Like, he gave so much of himself. He loved talking to people. He loved sharing it. I mean, I really resonated with him in that because I saw him, like I say, Al, would you come talk to this guy? He always wanted to give back. And he, in the studio, was like he, magician to watch. He, he'd just do something out with a console and then the music would come back. Perfect. He just loved, you could tell it was embedded in his soul at a very young age because he just loved it. He loved being around. You know, he expected the team to be on time, to be ready. He kept the par very high. 
he was always on his game and always nice and friendly. I can't imagine life without him. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird that he left and Capitol closed temporarily. So strange. Yeah, I'm sure that's a lot of a lot to digest, you know, like mm. that amount of change with, with his passing and then the building closing for earthquake yeah. retrofit. Let's fill the audience in here. So Capitol closed because it had needed earthquake retrofitting, which is very intrusive. Oh, yeah. And, you know, living here in the Bay Area, I was here during the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989 and wow. have lived through many earthquakes since. So I know all about earthquake retrofitting, which is something that that's a phrase that is probably not in many people's vocabulary who don't live in earthquake prone areas. So what happens when Capitol closes down temporarily? What happens to the gear? It all went into storage. It all got packed securely. The modules were taken out of the frame was left and covered. Okay. But everything else, mics, speakers, everything was put into secure storage. And so they're doing the whole building. After they do the retrofitting, they're going to do some renovations and spruce it up. So it's a really great investment they're making and stuff. Yeah, for the longevity of such an iconic building. Yeah, it's a landmark historical building. Is there a time frame? Well, I'm sure there's a time frame. Is there a projected time frame, I should say? Yeah, it's going to go into next year. Hopefully by the end of next year, 2025, it'll be all ready to go. That's an intense thing to pull off on a building of that type and that size. Yeah, yeah. For the audience, I want to point out, I'll put a link in the show notes to my only interview with Al Schmidt. It's actually Al Schmidt and Steve Jenowick. It's long you ago. Did? Yeah. It was, I mean, we're in the 460 range here with you, but this is episode <gasps> number 70 that, that we go back to many, many years ago with Al Schmidt and Steve Jenowick. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Oh, and Paula, if you have I would love heard, to see that. Yeah, wow. yeah. Well, it's 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 audio only, but I'll send you a link yeah. to it so you can check it out. It's it's great. Oh. And just kind of another note on Al. I have a friend here in the Bay Area, Jerry Stucker, who uh, I know what, Jerry really well. Oh yeah. Okay. Yep. So Jerry, yep. Jerry would always go down, talk about Al, talk about Steve. Yep. And there was an AES show here in San Francisco, and Al was doing kind of a hey, I'm gonna be over at Hyde Street Studios if you want to come by and I stopped by and I kind of caught him in a period where like nobody was really there. And I walked yeah. in, he couldn't have been more nice to me and more. I just said, Hey, Al, I'm a friend of Jerry Stuckers. Oh my God, come on in, sit down. And we just, just talked yeah. such a nice guy. And I just, I have a picture of it somewhere. I look super duper young. He looks <laughs> super duper young, but I'll never forget that moment of how he treated me back then. So nice. Can you imagine how lucky I was every day? I'd hear his footsteps. He'd come into my office, give me a hug, say hi to everybody, and then go down to work. And then every time he could, he'd take a break and come on up and just sit on my couch. And I'm like... <sighs> yeah. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. I have to say he attracts like-minded people because I got to give a shout out to Steve Genowick. Steve is just such yeah. a, a great person. He's been very kind to me, very supportive Definitely. Since I've known him. He's a gem. Yeah. He really is. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. You got me on this. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I have to thank Steve for that, too. <laughs> so do you foresee yourself staying on in this role or at Capital for the foreseeable future? Do you have other things you want to do in your life? My life revolves so much around music and the 
relationships I've done. Of course, I would love to stay. That's a wonderful company to work with. I've grown up in it. It's like, I'm not ready to graduate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Studios are like high schools. But I like being part of the whole music documentary like what's going on with that and putting studio things together, studio stories. I think it's a lot of untouched land that could be done and the stories about the woman in studios. You know, I it'd be nice to delve into that a little bit. I wish I was more of a writer, but, you know, I just like to give credit where credit's due. I think so. everybody has stories mm-hmm. and not everybody gets a two-hour documentary, but I think there's a lot of stories of people. And it never ceases to amaze me how much people love talking to people that are in studios and how much the commercials are all about councils now. They just, it just attracts people. Mm-hmm. We've always been in this business and immerse themselves, but there's people outside of, in other business that are really, wow, it's like, what's, what goes on there? It's still an intriguing place. Yeah, exactly. It still carries the, the mystery. So I want to do my part to share that and help empower up-and-coming younger women that are trying to break into this business and not only breaking in, I think breaking in is easy when you're 20, but it's just having longevity. That's a tough thing. Yeah. That's my challenge now. Well, after 33 plus years, have you seen more women come into the world of the studio? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. More engineers, always in the business. Studios are really good for women too because you have to have that balance. But yeah, in the engineering world, there's a lot more women. And, you know, see, I'm sorry I didn't learn more, but I don't think that's my calling. That's what Candace said too. She thought she would be going to be an engineer. It's like, mm. you have to have something special to be able to manage the control room scene and also run the equipment at the same time. I think it's an art. I have this fantasy business idea of you and Candace and Rose forming a studio consulting agency. Yeah, if there's call for that, I don't know, you know? <laughs> it's like everybody knows everything nowadays, you know? Yeah, it's a very different different world. Mm-hmm. And there's fewer and fewer studios like Capital, like East West. So it's kind of a parting thought. What do you think the landscape of the recording world is in Los Angeles? as you see it? There's so many studios. There's so many studios coming up. There's so many choices. I think also the new generation coming up that doesn't need a studio, but that studio world and that studio environment that we all grew up in that made us fall in love with it, those kids haven't seen that. They haven't experienced that. So like I said, how many generations, how many decades have I witnessed? And it seems like maybe it'll be new to say, you guys all play together in a room? Like, wow, how did you do that? Like, it's like, well, come here, come have fun. It's more fun with a bunch of people than you sitting alone. Yeah. You know? So I think fun and music go together. I think they're always going to attract people again. I just watch things come around. I'm optimistic about it. But then also I'm sometimes pessimistic about it going, ah, oh, that's it. You know? So it's, it's kind of a two-edged sword, really. I think I asked Candace this as well, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it. For the people listening who are running their own commercial studios, if you have any advice for them on what it takes to run a successful studio with longevity. You really got to treat everybody equal. You know, it's like a restaurant owner or 
person that greets you, if they're lackadaisical, you have to be in a good mood. You have to be welcoming and encouraging and just nice. You know, it's basic human skills, I think. You always got to have the technology and the expertise. That comes with everything. But what makes people go to a place than another place? You know, I have a lot of seasoned engineers say that to me. Why did I pick here instead of there? They both can do the job. But that's what an engineer said to me. Is that the way you made me feel when you come in? You're always happy to see me. I'm like, of course. But, you know, when you get busy or you just figure, oh, I got more important people coming in or this person, I think you're just going to treat everybody the same. It's hard too because you get, wow, this person coming in, I got to pay attention to that. But you have to be, like Al said, be nice to everybody. Words to live by. Well, Paula, this has been fantastic talking with you. It's really a true pleasure. I've met you in passing briefly one time, but it's great to just sit here and chat with you and, and hear about your experience. Yeah, I love I love your questions or how we keep the conversation going. You know, it's really great. Well, thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, you take care and thanks again. All right. Thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right. Pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Paula Salvatore here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Of course, I want to encourage you to head on over to your podcast aggregator, leave a five-star review and write up something nice if you can do that. And short of that, if you could at least tell a friend, that would be greatly appreciated. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the fantastic, beautiful voice of Mr. Chuck Smith at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>